0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for blessing us with this opportunity to feed on your words. We have tasted that you are good and we crave your words the way newborn babies crave milk. As we strive now to understand your words here in this passage. Would you enlighten our minds and would you stir our affections to worship you? We ask for Jesus' sake, amen. Our passage that Pastor Sam just read is part of a letter that Peter wrote. He wrote it thousands of years ago, not to us, but these are God's words for us. These are God's words for us, and every word matters. And we want to understand what the human author and the divine author intended to communicate in this passage. That's our task now. And that means we should be asking lots of questions as we look at this passage. Like, what what does this word mean? And how does this argument work? And how does this fit with other passages of Scripture? How does it harmonize? And how should what this passage says about God affect how we think and feel about him. And you look at the the very first line, a question should come to mind, the very first word. What is the first word in verse six? It's the word for, for. That raises all kinds of questions. And the way we understand our passage hinges on how we understand that word for. So let's, let's look at this passage again, but let's start by reading the previous sentence, verses four and five. And as we do that, try to figure out how's this, how does the argument work? What's the word for doing there? And also look for one other thing. See if you can spot the theme all throughout this passage, verses four through eight. We'll start reading in verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Did you notice the recurring theme? I'll point it out. Very first line of verse four. As you come to him, a living stone. You yourselves like living stones First quotation, behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone. Second quotation, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. I'm up to six. Last quotation, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Eight times we've got this word stone or cornerstone or rock. That's, that's the theme that runs through this passage. And as you look at the passage, it, it divides into, into two parts this will help us understand how to understand the word for. So for it stands in scripture. And then the first part is that first quotation in the next line. So the beginning of verse 7 says the honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe. All right, so, so the first half of the passage, verse, verse 6 and the first half of 7, is about you who believe. And then the next part is about you who don't believe. So that helps us break, break down the structure of the passage. And that also might help us understand how it connects to the previous sentence. Look at the previous sentence, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, that is you, you who believe, you elect exiles, a living stone rejected by men, by those who don't believe. Okay, so there it is in, in verses 4 and 5. He, he's saying there are people who reject the cornerstone, they reject the living stone, they reject Christ, and there are others who come to him. For, and then he has the quotations. All right, so whatever he's doing with the quotations, he's supporting the previous sentence. Now let's get more specific. When you use the word for, you can use it in a couple different ways. For example, I could say, I'm hungry because I haven't eaten for 24 hours. I said because, I gave it away. I'm hungry for I haven't eaten for 24 hours. All right, so the I haven't eaten for 24 hours is the reason I'm hungry. That's cause. But the word for can also work another way. I could say, I'm hungry for my stomach is growling. What's that? That's evidence. It's proof. It's the evidence I'm hungry is I've got a growling stomach. It's a little different than cause. In this passage, I don't think cause makes sense, saying some come to Christ, some reject him for and these quotations from the Old Testament. I think what's happening is Peter's saying, some come to Christ, some reject him as a living stone, and here's evidence. God predicted this in the Old Testament. In fact, God ordained it. He, he planned it. That's the connection. It's evidence. And I think about the, this picture of a stone that some think is precious and that some reject as not precious. I think of the saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. You heard that phrase before? One man's trash is another man's treasure. So it reminds me of a story. 2014, these two brothers in New Jersey, Roger and Stephen Lanow, they're taking care of their deceased mother's estate. So they hired this company to come in and help appraise stuff. They're gonna try to sell everything in the house. And in the basement, there's this old painting that one guy described. He said, it looked like a dark, discolored portrait of three people one of whom is passed out. And I looked at the painting myself and I agreed with that assessment. That's about what it looks like, which shows my, well, you'll see. All right, so uh, the auction agency appraised the item at about $250, maybe up to $800 for this old painting, which is pretty good for something that you don't want, right? Well, at the the auction, it sold for $1.1 million to a French buyer who then sold it to a Dutch, art collector for over $3 million. It ends up being an original painting by Rembrandt called The Unconscious Painter. One man's trash is another man's treasure. See, that's how people treat Christ. Some people treat him as supremely valuable and others do not. That's what this passage is depicting and it's giving evidence from that from the Old Testament. Now before we dive in and analyze the passage, it's helpful to just back up and get a sense of how it fits in the context of the letter. And remember, what we're doing week by week going through First Peter is, is unusual in that we're, we're taking months to work through a letter that in all likelihood God's people would have heard in one sitting. It was, it was a letter Peter wrote to people, it takes like 15 minutes to read in one sitting and they wouldn't have broken it up so much over time. So it's just good to remind ourselves, what is this letter about again? The very first lines, uh, Peter addresses to elect exiles. These people are being persecuted. Christians are being persecuted for their faith. And I think the message of the letter, Peter sums up at the very end. It's in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I think that's the theological message of this letter is when you're being persecuted, you're being insulted for following Jesus, stand firm in God's grace. Don't waver. Trust God and trust his words. Peter's exhorting persecuted Christians to understand that the polarized way that people respond to Christ, that polarized way we see in our passage, rejecting Christ or or coming to him as a living stone, that, that that is... Something that God predicted in the Old Testament and that he's even ordained. Now persecution today comes in all shapes and sizes. There are many places in this world where Christians are in danger of being tortured and and even killed. I'm grateful that in our context, persecution looks more like being insulted. uh, Which is no fun, but it's a lot better than being tortured and killed. Uh, One of the courses I, I get to teach to graduate students at Bethlehem College and Seminary is called ethics, Christian ethics, and we spend a lot of time in that course talking about sexual ethics, all different uh, varieties of uh, or, or issues related to that, and the reason is that that issue is so controversial in our culture. Uh, it's not We're not at the point yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if even in my lifetime there are certain things the Bible affirms that would be hate crimes for me to say publicly from a pulpit, things that Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years, like g- God created humans as male and female and he ordained marriage for one man and one woman and that sex is something God ordained for only marriage. Um, these sorts of things, if you believe them today, can result in ridicule from the world, to, to feel insulted and, and shamed. And, and I know it, it's not a crime to affirm what the Bible teaches in our culture, but much of what the Bible teaches opposes what our culture values it's not respectful. It's not respectable to, to believe the Bible, all of it in our culture. It's backwards. It puts us on the wrong side of history and all that. But not according to First Peter. According to First Peter, to be with Christ is to be on the right side of history. It may not feel like it right now. It might be difficult right now for us believers, when unbelievers shame us. but at the last day, verse seven says, "There will be honor." for those who believe, and shame for those who don't believe. So Peter's arguing in this letter, persevere, stand firm in God's grace, keep trusting and treasuring Christ no matter what the world says or does to you. That's how this passage fits in the, in the message of the letter. So if I were to sum up our passage, that's verses six to eight, if I were to summarize our passage in one sentence, I'd say it like this. Here is evidence that some come to Christ as a living stone and that others reject him. Here's evidence that some come to Christ as a living stone and that others reject him. So I'd like to preach to you from this passage on this topic. Evidence that some come to Christ as a living stone and that others reject him and we'll approach it in those two parts. So first, evidence that some come to Christ as a living stone and then second, Evidence that others reject Christ as a living stone. And we'll start in verse 6. Evidence that some come to Christ as a living stone. I'm going to approach this passage by asking questions. First, I'll ask four questions of this first part here. And this is just to illustrate, when you come to the Bible, you want to read and understand, study the Bible, ask questions. That's how we learn more about, about what it's saying, about what God's saying to us. The first question I have for you is based on the first line. For it stands in Scripture. Why does Peter appeal to Scripture. I don't want to skip over this. For it stands in Scripture. Scripture refers in this context to the Old Testament. So Peter's appealing to the Old Testament as an unquestioned authority because Christians believe that the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, are God's words. We are Bible people. We completely trust what God has revealed to us in his word as our final authority. The very first sentence that members of our church affirm in our congregational affirmation of faith says this. So if you're a member, you've already agreed to this and you celebrate this. This is what we believe. We believe that the Bible is the word of God, fully inspired and without error in the original manuscripts, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. That's what we believe. This is, this is God's word for us. So Peter's appealing to scripture to give convincing evidence that God has planned that some will come to Christ as a living stone and that others will reject him. So first, he gives evidence that some will come to Christ as a living stone. He quotes Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So question number two, what's a cornerstone? Whatever it is, it's really important. We just sang a song called Cornerstone. see cornerstone in this passage and it's in several others. Do you even know what a cornerstone is? Uh, I had to confirm this again this week just to make sure because I had heard some people referring to it as a capstone. like Like the... The top stone on a building, like like the top of a pyramid, or as the the keystone in an arch. But but verse eight says that people stumble over this, and that seems like it'd be hard to stumble over a capstone. So I don't think that's what this is talking about. So at the cornerstone is in, in ancient building construction, it's the most important stone. It, it sets the foundation and it connects two walls. It's the first major action in any construction is to lay that cornerstone. And all the other stones are plumbed to the cornerstone. The size and quality of a building was based on the size and quality of the cornerstone. It's critical. Question number three. Why does Peter quote Isaiah 28, 16 here? Why that passage? Why here? Well, this this could become another sermon in itself. It's to understand the theological message of Isaiah and how chapter 28 fits in that and how this passage fits in there. So I'm going to do a lot of summarizing. So Isaiah 28 is a blistering judgment on Ephraim and Jerusalem for disobeying and disbelieving God. And then there's this beautiful hope right in the center of it, uh, Isaiah 28:16. Here's how the ESV puts it. Whoever believes will not be in haste. It's a beautiful uh, word of hope for the remnant. And then the NIV translates it, the one who relies on it, that is the precious cornerstone, will never be stricken with panic. And this fits with the theological message of Isaiah, which is that God's people... Should trust, believe, rely on the Holy One of Israel, who who is the incomparable King and Savior. Over and over, Isaiah is imploring people, trust the Holy One of Israel because he's the incomparable King and Savior. And, And in Isaiah, God predicts that he will lay a cornerstone in Zion, in Jerusalem. That's the site of the Jerusalem temple. So whatever this work is, he's predicting, it's going to replace the temple with the result that now God's people are the living temple. That's what we see in the previous sentence in verse five, and Pastor Stephen preached on that last week. One more question on, on this part of the passage. number four: What does Peter infer from Isaiah 28:16? You notice that, the, that after he quotes it, "What's his first word? So. So, that's indicating an inference. He says, so, the honor, that, that's the opposite of shame, the honor is for you who believe. There'll be no shame for those who trust and treasure Christ. And Peter says this because persecuted believers may feel dishonor when people shame them for, for following Christ. And this, this truth should lift up, it should encourage persecuted believers persevere, stand firm in God's grace because at the last day, you won't be put to shame, you'll receive honor. And and Peter's already said this in chapter one, verse seven, where he says, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what might this sort of persecution look like for us today? Let's give you one example. This is a recent one. just happened a month or two ago. So our our former pastor for Preaching and Vision, John Piper, just wrote a book called Coronavirus and Christ. In May, some major news outlets reported that a United States Army chaplain was in trouble for commending Piper's book to fellow military chaplains via email and some called for this, this chaplain to be disciplined and court-martialed. And in a public letter to the Secretary of Defense, the Military Religious Freedom Foundation calls Piper's book, Unmitigated Drivel, Incendiary, Bigoted, and Vulgar. Wow, well, it sounds like a terrible book. Uh, here's why. Because in the book, Piper quotes Romans that homosexual intercourse is a sin and he argues that God is sovereign over the coronavirus and that he sends it and that he will end it when he wills. That's what's incendiary and bigoted and vulgar. So non-Christians are constantly trying to shame Christians for affirming what the Bible teaches. But we must not let pressure like that lead us To deny Christ and his word. We must persevere. We must stand firm in God's grace. And remember that at the last day, we will receive honor. We will not be put to shame. So that's part one of our passage. That's evidence that some come to Christ as a living stone. And you notice the very next word, middle of verse 7, is but. So here's a contrast. Here's evidence that others reject Christ as a living stone. There's honor for those who believe but there's dishonor or shame for those who do not believe. And what Peter does here is he quotes two Old Testament passages back to back as evidence that God has predicted that some would reject Christ as the living stone. verse is uh, Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the next is Isaiah 8.14, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. So let's approach this passage by asking three questions. Question one, why does Peter quote Psalm 118.22 here? And I'd like to encourage you, if you have the, the ability, is to turn in your Bible to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. You were expecting to go to Psalm 118. I'll explain in a second. Matthew 21 and go ahead and go to Matthew 21 verse 42. One reason that Peter quotes Psalm 118:22 is that he heard Jesus quote that passage about himself. Let me show you. Matthew 21:42. This is Jesus speaking, and just imagine Jesus speaking these words while Peter was listening. Jesus says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's Matthew 21, 42. Jesus is quoting Psalm one eighteen twenty-two and one more verse, 23. Now, now, if you can turn over to Acts 4, I'll show you one more passage and it'll help connect all this. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. So after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, Peter preached to the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. And this is what he said in Acts 4, 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So Peter heard Jesus teach that he fulfills Psalm 118, 22 and 23, and then Peter preached that in Jerusalem. And we just read from decades later, Peter writing that to elect exiles Jesus already taught him. He's already made the connection that Jesus fulfills Psalm 118 and now in, in this letter we're reading, he's just continuing to apply that text. Listen to what that text says. I'll read a little bit more. This is from Psalm 118, 22 to 24. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. That's ultimately speaking of Christ's resurrection. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So in Psalm 118, the builders who reject the cornerstone are foreign nations who are rejecting the God of Israel. Jesus ultimately fulfills Psalm 118, 24, when God raised him from the dead. And the builders who reject the cornerstone were Jewish religious leaders, Acts 4:11 And First Peter The builders who are rejecting the cornerstone include non-Christian authorities and neighbors who are persecuting Christians. And here's what connects them all. Many people who think they are building for God are actually rejecting the most important stone for a building. They're rejecting Christ, the Messiah. So that's question one. Uh, Why does Peter quote Psalm 118.22 here? Second, why does Peter quote Isaiah 8.14 here? A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isaiah eight exhorts God's people to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. And Isaiah eight fourteen says that the Lord will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Notice that in its context, Isaiah is emphasizing two aspects: the, the stone is a sanctuary. And a stone that causes people to take offense and stumble. And here in 1 Peter, he's emphasizing the judgment that unbelievers will experience when they reject Christ, the cornerstone. Now, a third question about this part of the passage, probably the most difficult to answer, is regarding the final sentence Does God destine people to disobey and stumble? His final sentence is controversial among some Christians. Look at it. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the controversy here is whether this passage supports what theologians call reprobation. So reprobation is the flip side of election, which we've already seen in this letter, the very opening lines, Peter addresses this letter to those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So election means that God sovereignly and unconditionally chose to save individuals. He chose to save people. Mercifully, graciously, he chose to save people. The flip side of that is reprobation. So he didn't choose others. Reprobation means that God chose to pass over non-elect sinners and eternally punish them. So election is the act of choosing. Reprobation is the the less act of more of the passing over, passing over. So if you choose something, by definition, you're not choosing others. And the question I'm raising here is, does the final sentence of our passage refer to, to that reprobation? They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Does God destine people to disobey and therefore stumble? Well, here's a, a form-based way to translate that sentence. They stumble, disobeying the word, unto which also they were appointed. That word appointed, that's how the New American Standard Bible translates it. Uh, Appointed or destined, that translates the same word that verse 6 says, I lay, I lay in Zion, I appoint in Zion, I destined in Zion. And you might notice that in verse 6, it's active. I appoint, I lay. In verse 8, it's passive, uh, to which they were destined. You know the difference between active and passive? Um, uh, I'll illustrate it like this. Um, Would a politician be more likely to say... I made mistakes, or mistakes were made. Okay, you all understand the difference. Uh, so passive doesn't tell you who made the mistakes. It doesn't, it doesn't explicitly identify the actor, the person doing the action. The active voice does it. So the question, what, what's going on here? When it says, uh, they were destined, as they were destined, or appointed, who did the destiny, who did the appointing? And this is what theologians call a divine passive. Obviously in the context, this is something that God did, but that just asks, it just uh, raises a further question. So how does this work? Like how does God do this without sinning? So th- some of our, our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, answer that by approaching this passage a little differently than I do. So some will interpret this final sentence in a way that they think gets God off the hook. So they argue that what's ultimately decisive for whether a person is a believer or an unbeliever is that person's choice, that person's completely free, autonomous decisions. So in this passage, they argue that God doesn't appoint people to disobey the word. So disobeying the word is the same thing as not believing, it's rejecting Christ. God doesn't appoint people, he doesn't destine people to do that. Rather, they argue... God appoints that people who disobey the word will then therefore stumble and then be punished. So, in other words, God appoints the stumbling, the result of the, of the disobeying is stumbling and punishment. That's what God appoints. God does not appoint the disobeying. You follow that? Okay. Uh, I think there's a problem with that view. Namely, that's not what the text says. The text says they stumble disobeying the word unto which also they were appointed. And that phrase, unto which they were appointed, refers to both the stumbling and the disobeying. God destined both. The phrase disobeying the word is the reason they stumble. That's why the ESV translates it, they stumble because they disobey the word. And this corresponds to the previous sentences. So second half of verse seven, here's a topic, here's a people, those who don't believe, and the second quotation is, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Stone of stumbling, rock of offense. They're parallel. You take offense. You don't believe. And therefore, you stumble. They're parallel. They're, they're parallel items right in the, in, in the quotation that, that precedes this sentence. Stumbling and being offended are parallel. To stumble is to take offense and thus not believe. And the text says that God appointed or destined that those who don't believe stumble. Because they disobey the word. Does this fit with what other passages in scripture say? Let me remind you what I just had you look at in Matthew 21. You just turned to Matthew 21, 42, and you heard Jesus say this. Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Do you remember the next sentence? This is the Lord's doing. Again, that's quoting Psalm 118.23. This is the Lord's doing. The Lord did this. God destined that some would reject Jesus, the cornerstone. God appointed it. God planned it. And as Jesus said, quoting Psalm 118.23, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So that's why Peter could preach to his fellow Israelites At Pentecost, this is Acts 2.23, Again, Peter, the same one who wrote the letter we're studying, Peter preaches, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God planned that people would reject and murder Jesus, and God planned this without being guilty of sin himself. People were genuinely accountable for their sin. And that's why God's people in Acts 4, 27, and 28 prayed this. Truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God planned that people would reject and murder Jesus and God planned this without being guilty of sin himself. So back to 1 Peter 2.8. Does this teach that God destines people to disobey and stumble? Yes, I think it does. And it harmonizes with many other scripture passages. If I had more time, I'd take you to Romans 9 and just walk through that passage. Uh, now, I realize that this is a difficult teaching But God has revealed this truth to us in the Bible, so we dare not ignore it or minimize it or reject it. If you want to dig deeper on this issue of God's sovereignty in election and reprobation, I would recommend highly that you listen to John Piper, our church's previous pastor for Preaching and Vision, preach on Romans 9. How many of you were here when he did that about 20 years ago, Romans 9? A couple here, wow, such a turnover. If you haven't heard those sermons, you gotta go hear them, Romans 9. I wasn't here either, but, I, but at the time, I was in grad school studying Romans and I was listening to them week by week as they came out and they, God used them to, to really transform how I was thinking and feeling about, about God's sovereignty. I was, I was seeing and savoring the power and beauty of God's sovereignty and his mercy. As you, can, you can access all those as uh, manuscripts, audio, video at desiringgod.org. Let's go for the sermon series on Romans. Now I'll close our discussion of reprobation here and our passage by sharing John Piper's concluding thoughts on the predestination of unbelief in 1 Peter 2.8. So he's got this other thing called look at the book he does where he puts the, the words on the screen. You don't even see his face. You just hear his voice and he marks it up. And So he's got one on First Peter, the whole book. So as we're preaching through First Peter, maybe you want to watch those as we go along. But there's one on this passage, First Peter 2, 4 to 8, where he concludes with nine, nine thoughts about reprobation in this passage. And I just want to read them to you. So first, uh, this is the other side of the coin in Peter's calling the Christians elect exiles in first Peter 1 Peter 1.1. So if some are elect, then God passes over some and wills that they not be elect. And they express that in unbelief. Second, the mystery here is how, how God rules over sinners without sinning. It's not that he does. You see, you ask, people, like I have students who ask, explain how this works philosophically. I I, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, What I do know is the, the Bible says this, and it says this, and I believe in both, They're not necessarily contradictory. I just don't know how it all fits. But the last thing I want to do is tweak God's word to make it make sense in here. Number three, God can and does will the sinful unbelief of those who reject Christ. Yet, four, there are no persons who want to be saved and are prevented against their will. Nobody ever says, I wanted to be saved and you wouldn't let me. Never happens, never. Five, every person who perishes Willfully rejects the knowledge of God that they have. Six, there are no persons who are not morally responsible for their unbelief. Everyone is responsible for rejecting the cornerstone. Seven, there are no persons whose judgment will be unjust. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? God is always just. Eight, all of us were hopelessly sinful, fallen in Adam, and none of us deserves to be delivered. It's all pure mercy. Our closing song is going to be his mercy is more. And then finally, and what this is, this last point is is summarizing how this fits in the context of the letter, how it applies in the context of 1 Peter. Therefore take heart you embattled exiles, you who are persecuted and insulted for following Christ. None of your adversaries can thwart God's plan. That's why Peter says They, that is all these unbelievers who are making your life miserable, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They're not obstructing or or thwarting God's plan. They're fulfilling it. So take heart. Just as Jesus was rejected and then honored, so you too, you followers of Christ, you will be honored. So persevere. That's how this fits in the passage. So again, this passage is presenting evidence that some come to Christ as a living stone and that others reject him. And Peter writes this to encourage Christ persecuted, Christ, Christ, no, per, to encourage persecuted Christ followers. There we go. Too many hyphens. John Piper was better at hyphens. Yeah. So if you follow Christ, this passage should be an encouragement. I mean, some of you may have looked at this passage ahead of the sermon and thought, how do you preach this? If you understand it in the context of the letter, These quotations from the Old Testament are supposed to bolster our faith. God planned this. He predicted this. This is all part of what he's planned out when you're going through persecution. Just remember, this is all part of what God planned, and you will receive honor. So persevere. Stand fast in God's grace. That's how it fits. Now, I've been preaching this message to Christians, to those who follow Christ. And if you are listening and you do not follow Christ, I welcome you to come to Christ, the living stone, the cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And we welcome you. Believe in him. He's, 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 he is, can be your Lord too. Now, if you have any questions about this Christ I'd be happy to talk to you. You, you could ask questions, of, any questions you have about Christ and the Bible. would be happy to talk to you. Any of our pastors, any of our members, you could ask, ask questions. We would be honored to, to listen to you, to talk to you, to pray for you. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others